With great power comes great responsibility. Compromise where you can. Where you can't, don't. Even if everyone is telling you that something wrong is something right. Even if the whole world is telling you to move. It is your duty to plant yourself like a tree. Look them in the eye and say no. You move. Never step onto the battlefield of ideas unprepared. Before you enter the fray, you need a plan. And there's no better place to get one than right here on Tactics with host Caleb Colquitt. The Situation Room goes live now on News Radio 1440. Good evening, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thanks so much for being with us here on the program. As always, we are certainly thrilled to see you today. And as you can tell, it is Veterans Day. And so we always do something special for our vets. I mean, they, they deserve so much more than just having a, a special show. I mean, we could just do shows and shows and shows about that. But uh, this is the day that we dedicate to saying thank you to those who have served our country and fought to defend our liberties that are espoused in the Constitution of our country and the other liberties not necessarily laid out in that way that preserve our way of life. And we certainly do appreciate everyone that is has served in the armed forces, regardless of what branch you were in. If you are watching and you are a veteran, I would like to personally say thank you to everybody that is served in some capacity. And there's something that I have to share with y'all right now. Um, my grandfather is my favorite vet. He's actually my great-grandfather on my mother's side. Uh, I also have a grandfather that served in the Army. I don't believe he served in any kind of combat capacity, but my father's father. So on both sides, I've got veterans. This is something that is very near and dear to my heart. And uh, my great-grandfather, a Bronze Star recipient, fought the, the Nazis in Germany. And uh, he is you know, one of the few surviving World War II veterans we have left. There have been people that have interviewed him, talked to him, and he's really not able to do that anymore because of his health. But I mean, uh, the guy's just such a champion, such a hero. Uh, he's been my hero for my entire life and been quite an example to me. My, my other grandfather, who um, I believe he was in the military somewhere around the, uh, the 50s, um, it wasn't like he just barely missed the Korean War. And so I believe it would have been like just a little bit after the Korean War. And so they're both getting on up there. And one of the things that I noticed at Faulkner's Chapel service today, where we had a special presentation for our veterans and, and spent the entirety of our chapel today honoring those who have served, which I think is fantastic. I love the fact that Faulkner does that. But, you know, one thing that I noticed is I'm in a room full of college students and you would expect there not to be like a ton of vets because it's, you know, college students. But there were a few, a few that have done ROTC or served in the National Guard. I know a couple of them that do that. And what's really kind of sad to see is that our younger generation just doesn't have that connection to vets like they used to. They have family members that served a lot of them. And, and remember that this is Alabama and the South. The Southeast in general just tends to have a higher concentration of veterans. Uh, this is just where a lot of our vets come from. And not, not to say that they don't come from other states, too. I'm not trying to disparage them. I'm just saying, you know, statistically, based on our population, a larger percentage of our population in the South tends to be veterans as opposed to other states that you could go to. The Midwest has a pretty, pretty decent concentration of them as well. And so I'm not saying that others don't contribute. I'm just saying uh, per population, the South has the most. 
And it was so sad that there just weren't that many vets there. Just not a lot of them. And that's not, you know, any kind of commentary on the vets in the local area, because I'm sure that they, you know, would like to come to something like that. It's a commentary on the fact that our college students, there's not many of them that go into the armed forces. And it's it's really... I think part of the reason there's so much misinformation out there and there's an increasing hostility towards the military, I think largely is because of that, because there's not that personal connection like there used to be. And, you know, I just absolutely love my, both my great grandfather who served in world war two and my other grandfather that was in the army. And I mean, I I do have a a close relationship with both of them and, and really love them. And, you know, having that personal connection, I think, makes a big difference for people. And that's something that we're starting to lose because I'm extremely lucky that I have both of my grandfathers still because one is in his 80s and the other is in his 90s. And so they're, they're getting on up there. And my great grandfather is in very poor health right now. It, it really breaks my heart to see somebody that I've always thought, thought of as really just being a pillar of strength. And somebody that was was so dependable and you could always rely on him. And, and now, you know, I'm he just just being honest here. He needs help to even do simple things like go to the bathroom. And I mean, it's just heartbreaking to see somebody that you've always thought of as being just this unbreakable person uh, broken down to that. But that's what happens with age. And that's happening to a lot of our vets. And there's not many World War II vets left that even if they are still alive, they're not in great health just because of how old they are. And it won't be long, I hate to say it, that we won't have any of those left. And we're going to start losing a lot of our Korean vets pretty soon. And so we're getting to the point to where people just have a a lot less of a personal connection to veterans. And that's really sad because back when our communities were a little bit more open, even if you didn't necessarily have a relative that served, you knew somebody that did, and that made a big difference. And so uh, I hate to see that that we're losing that, but I think things like Veterans Day are a great opportunity to just take a second and stop and focus on what our vets have done for us. And that's why I'm so glad that this holiday exists. And here's the thing that you may not have known. The reason that this holiday exists is because of the state of Alabama. It was actually an Alabamian that started this holiday in Birmingham. And Alabama has been doing Veterans Day for longer than any other state. Now, there have been several states that have local state holidays that honor veterans, maybe like a veteran of a particular war. But as far as November 11th, Veterans Day, Alabama has been doing it longer than any other state in the country. And we're the ones that commissioned President Eisenhower to make it a national holiday. And so that was something that was really cool that I had no idea about. And being somebody that lives in Alabama and considers himself a little bit of a history buff, honestly, I was a little bit embarrassed to find out that that was something that I did not know about beforehand. But yeah, started right here in Alabama. And most Alabamians don't know this history. Like I said, I'm kind of a history nerd and I had no idea about this until today. And so with that in mind, that means that the average Alabamian probably doesn't know this. There's not that many of us that understand this is a holiday that was actually started here in the state of Alabama. And a lot of that may be for a long time, people believed it started in another state. They thought it started in Kansas because they were apparently had a a part to play in it being a national holiday, but that was later. And so we've been actually celebrating it for the longest out of all of the states. 
And there was a great news story put out by our friends at 1819 News. You've, you've heard me mention them. We had Brian Dawson, the CEO, in. They're a new news company. I very much recommend you go to 1819 News. And uh, the Daily is one of my favorite features. It's a great way to get caught up or if you have a day where you have two papers due this week, like I do, having the Daily let you stay plugged in without having to you know, watch an hour-long podcast, only 10 minutes. Highly recommend that organization, a lot of the features there. But yeah, 1819 News put out a, a story today about the origins of Veterans Day and how it happened within the state of Alabama, and I commend them for that. So we'll, we'll look at this little excerpt from this here. World War II Navy veteran Raymond Weeks petitioned General Dwight D. Eisenhower at the Pentagon in 1946 to establish National Veterans Day in 1947. General Eisenhower agreed. On November 11, 1947, he sent a telegram to Raymond Weeks encouraging Birmingham and expressing hope this would uh, hopes this commemoration of veterans and world peace could spread across the nation. It did. President Eisenhower signed it into law Veterans Day as a national holiday in 1954. The National Veteran Award was established in 1954 by National Veterans Day in Birmingham. On Veterans Day 1982, President Ronald Reagan honored Weeks with the Presidential Citizenship Medal, recognizing him as the driving force behind the national holiday. As the White House, during his nationally televised address to the nation, in her briefings, sorry, in her briefing recommended Weeks for the award, Elizabeth Dole described Weeks as the father of Veterans Day. So I thought that was pretty stinking cool that the state of Alabama has done something just, you know, that monumental that affected the entire country, something that uh, really honors veterans and puts them in the limelight and they deserve it. They absolutely need uh, a day. They deserve, like I said, so much more, but having a day to just step back and think about veterans and what they've done for us and the service they have rendered to defend our freedoms. I think that that's absolutely just, just a great idea. I mean, I think it was pretty obvious, but, um, you know, the fact that it started in Alabama, that's just, that's just great. And I really think that that's cool. But like I said, for a long time, there was a dispute in the history there and they actually thought that it started in another state and 1819 news again, put that side of the story in there. So they said, thanks to research by Bob Horton of Veterans Affairs, we learned the U.S. Congress had passed a resolution 10 years earlier that said Veterans Day started in another state in 1953 and 1954, seven years after Alabama was already doing Veterans Day. So we knew the truth, but this congressional action would make public officials hesitant to support a different position. So we had to prove our case. So this is the guy that was in charge of basically setting the historical record straight and seeing all of the history about Alabama having celebrated Veterans Day before Congress and their official documents had said that Veterans Day actually started. But they're like, yeah, but since it's official and Congress has already went forward, I know this is going to be a shock to everybody, but Congress screwed something up. I know. I know. Stop the presses. Congress made a mistake, guys. Anyway. So he goes through the history and he finds there's actual proof and not just proof, but proof directly from a former president of the United States. And we'll take a look at that graphic. This is a newspaper clipping from the Washington Times. And I won't read the uh, the blurb there underneath because, you know, it's basically says the same thing that the article I just read said. But yeah, that is um, that is the uh, 
the Navy man, Raymond Weeks, who started the whole thing, the driving force behind it, and was known as the father of National Veterans Day, shaking hands with and getting a medal from President Ronald Reagan, thanking him for his service and starting Veterans Day. So, yeah, that, that was pretty much the nail in the coffin for the case of where Veterans Day started. This is a Birmingham resident who started the celebration in Birmingham and was given a presidential commendation for him starting Veterans Day. And so, especially since that happened and uh, they recognized that Alabama was celebrating it seven years before, they thought that it officially started in, in 1953 and 1954. So they were like, yeah, okay, that's that's when it started. And so we have set the record straight. Everybody knows now that it, it is indeed within the state of Alabama that this holiday started. And it's just one more reason that I am very proud to be a citizen of the greatest state in this country. So Alabama, I think that what this demonstrates about our state, Alabama just has the best people. We really do. I, I know that I'm biased. I know it's my home, but man, people ask me what I like about Alabama the most. Do I like the fact that it's a conservative state? Yeah. Do I like the fact that it's gorgeous? Yeah. Do I like the fact that it's warm most of the time? No, I actually really hate that, but, but still best state in the country. Uh, but if I have people ask me all the time, what is the best thing about the state of Alabama when I go outside of the state and talk to people, other conservatives or, or just random people outside the state? I was like, the best thing about Alabama by far, it's not even close. It's the people. People are by far the best part of the state. We just have fantastic salt of the earth people, God fearing, care about family, uh, will give you the shirt off their back. I mean, are there bad people in Alabama? Sure, there's bad people in every state. But overall, you, you take a sample size. I think that Alabama probably has the best people of any state in the country. And I just absolutely love it here. And this is just an example of that. People wanting to do something to show their gratitude for those who have helped them, wanting to pay them back in some way and have a holiday in their honor. And it happened right here within the state of Alabama. And that's just, you know, one more thing that shows exactly what I've been saying. We have the best people. Now, on to some other local news. Montgomery is getting an Amazon Fulfillment Center, which is pretty exciting, I've got to say. So it's not just a fulfillment center. It's also going to be uh, doing some other things. I don't really understand exactly all that they're doing. But yeah, Amazon is going to be coming to the state of Alabama that's actually part of a new wave of three Amazon fulfillment centers and facilities a fulfillment center is going to be part of it. And there's also going to be other facilities that do other things. So there's three of these, one in Birmingham, one in Montgomery and one in Huntsville. And so all three of these major cities are getting Amazon centers. This is really cool. We already knew about the one in, in Birmingham. You know, we had that big story about it last year. I think they've already pretty much built that one. I'm not sure if it's opened or operated yet, but or operating yet, but I mean, that one's already well underway. We knew about that one, but Amazon announced that they are going to be doing that. And then they're also going to have Amazon centers in Montgomery and Huntsville as well, which is really cool. Huntsville is a growing area. It's now the largest city in the state of Alabama. So it's kind of understandable why that one is going to be put there. But Montgomery, this is a big deal for us too, especially since, you know, we could definitely use the jobs and this is going to contribute roughly 900 jobs to this area, which is really cool. And on top of that 900 jobs, Amazon has already announced that they intend to increase that to, uh, I think they said about 500 more jobs on top of that original 900. So 1400 jobs within a year. You know, that's going to be a very, very big deal for the state of 
Alabama and for the city of Montgomery. I'm sure that they're going to be bringing some people in, but even the people that they bring in, that may not be a job for people already living in the city, but it's going to be money that comes into the economy because, you know, they got to live here, they got to eat here, they got to frequent businesses here. And so this is going to be a big economic boom. I mean, even if they didn't hire anyone in the area, which of course they, they will be hiring people in the area, but even if they didn't hire anybody, it would still be an economic boost to the city of Montgomery. And so that's really cool. I'm really glad to see that happening. And another thing that I'm quite excited about is same day shipping. So that one's really awesome. If, for those of you who don't know, for cities that have fulfillment centers, I'm not saying that this happens for every purchase, because obviously there's some that they can't do that with. But when it comes to having a fulfillment center in your city, if you have one, there's an awful lot of people that because they have a fulfillment center nearby, they can get shipping in a day. So if you're a Prime member, I actually have friends that live in Dallas, and there's a really big Amazon center in Dallas. Uh, I have some friends in Dallas that say they get within like three or four hours their package. I mean, it gets delivered by drone. Now, I have no idea if there's plans to do this in Montgomery or not. The story didn't go into that much detail, but I do think it's pretty awesome. And it, it could wind up a situation where I, you know, order a video game or something off of Amazon and I walk outside and there's just a drone that drops it off. That would be a pretty cool thing. Uh, you know, just uh, something to think about that they might be able to do that. We'll, we'll have to wait and see. Um, it will be about a $100 million capital investment. So that's going to be a really big deal for the state. It's going to be a, a really nice facility. And of course that means work for local people that are gonna be contractors and electricians and different people that help facilitate that. And so that's a really, really big shot in the arm for Montgomery's economy that's going to be coming here quite soon. And it should make the job market in other places more competitive because you know, if there's a big new corporation aggressively hiring a lot of new people, then what that means is that's going to be better for the workers, not just because there are more jobs available, but because they have more options. And even the jobs that they already that are already here in the state get more leverage. You want to have a, a ability to have like high wages, good benefits. The best thing that can happen for you there, even if you wind up staying at your own job, is for there to be a very robust jobs market within the area that you're living in. Because then employers know that they have to compete with other people because you have options to go somewhere else and they will actually give you more money and more benefits to help benefit that. This is one thing that I've been saying for a long time. You know, so many on the left say that the solution to having wages that are too low or whatever is to unionize and make laws that force people to pay you more. You know, the best thing to do with that, because it doesn't cost any jobs, it doesn't wreck the economy, is to just have a robust jobs market. In fact, lowering taxes and letting businesses come in and then create more jobs, that's the best thing for wages because then it happens organically and you don't have to torpedo the economy in order to do it. And so let's hope that that is what is going to happen here in Montgomery. I'm really excited about that. Governor Kay Ivey actually did say something about this in a statement earlier today. This comes via WSFA 12. Amazon's decision to simultaneously launch and announce these projects in Alabama shows the high level of confidence the company has in the abilities of our hardworking citizens who have shown time and time again that they can get the job done, Governor Ivey said. Companies from around the world have discovered that Alabama offers them all the ingredients of success, and this is another prime example. I really want to do the uh, the pun dog face, you know, the thing where he's in the shoe and he's like, 
a prime example because you know Amazon Prime. Now, I have no idea if Governor Ivy is hip enough to pull that off. I don't know if she actually intended that fun to be in there, but if she did, props to her, you know. I try to give credit where credit is due, even if I have some problems with Kay Ivy. You know, solid pun. I like the dad jokes, so good on that. But what she's saying there, I think, is absolutely true because Alabama does have fairly low taxes. We, you know, we have made an environment where businesses want to come in because they know that they're going to have low overhead costs, not a whole lot of taxes that they have to do, and that's going to be a very pro-business thing that really helps them. Um, there are a lot of other cities that might be able to offer similar tax incentives, but those tax incentives go away after a while. Now, you compare us to uh, Amazon. They did open a new facility, I believe, somewhere in Washington State recently, like one of their big headquarters. But the thing is, they opened one there, and then we're going to open two in New York. And then New York was so hostile towards them and wanting to tax them so much that they wound up just leaving. And I think that that really does demonstrate. Now, I'm not a fan, you know, being kind of a libertarian-minded guy. I'm not a big fan of like massive tax breaks and greasing the wheels and giving special benefits to some companies and not to others. I don't like that. But what I am saying is when it came to New York, they have such an anti-business, such an anti-capitalist mindset. that They actually drove them out and drove those jobs out of New York and drove them to other places. We're not getting those facilities per se because that was a couple of years ago. But the point is, Amazon has realized that, yeah, it makes a lot more sense to go to the red states because they just aren't hostile towards businesses. And it's really not, it's, it's kind of a no-brainer on that front. But yeah, um, the new Amazon facility coming there, the only thing about KIV's statement that I do think is a little bit funny, just because, you know, I, I try to find the humor in things. You think that she had a conversation with the Amazon people when she was in negotiations about the new online tax that she was so fervent about, about how she was talking. It's, it's not just that she passed the online tax. That's one thing. But it was also her fervor in talking about it that, oh, yeah, well, the, the main thing is we just online retailers are retailers are killing our local businesses and it's not fair for them and they should have to pay for that. Um, you do know the customers, not the business pays for that, right? Um, and then was talking about how people in Alabama were basically trying to skirt around the system by buying things online because it was a way to avoid taxes, which there have been several states that did similar things. There's not a single study at any point that this has anything to do with uh, their decision to buy either online or local. People are increasingly buying online, but it's not to avoid taxes. And it makes such a minor bump in the economy. And really what they're trying to do is bring in revenue. That's what they actually cared about. Governor Ivey's a tax and spend Republican. And because of that, she's never met a tax or spending measure that she didn't like. So uh, that's what actually happened. I wonder if she had that conversation with the Amazon executives when she was doing that, talking about how they're uh, basically killing the local economy and local businesses. I have a feeling she didn't. However, um, we would be more pro-business and probably get even more of these deals if Alabama as a state nixed the income tax. That's what really needs to happen. Actually, I'm fine with nixing either the sales tax or the income tax, but having both is just stupid. We either need to tax our income or tax our spending. But what they're doing here is they're getting a second bite of the apple because they tax you when you get your paycheck and then they tax you when you spend your paycheck. And so they just, they get it either way. And as I demonstrated before, Alabama has actually one of the higher combined tax rates if you go by that. And so 
Um, you know, for a conservative state, our tax burden, if you combine our, our sales tax and our income tax is actually quite high compared to other states. We're, we're not quite in like, you know, California territory, but we're, we're about, uh, we're actually above average when it comes to states on that tax burden. So you want to really, really make a difference there. You get rid of either the sales tax or the income tax. I don't care which one, but we got to get rid of one of them either way. So that's, what's going on here. But I do want to bring this up, even though I do think that this is a good thing, it's going to be a net good for the economy and for the city of Montgomery. Amazon, they kind of did make a killing in the pandemic, and that was largely at the expense of local businesses, because you'll notice that a lot of local businesses had to shut down. They were forced through no fault of their own that they had to close their doors and not allow people to shop and frequent their business. And a lot of those mom and pop places a lot of those retailers just went out of business. And part of that was because that money was being diverted to places, not just Amazon, but Amazon was a big part of it. I mean, you also had places like Home Depot and Lowe's and Walmart that were still open as well. But you couldn't go to your local mom and pop grocery store. They didn't get that sweetheart deal. But the big grocery store or the, the, the big box stores, they got that deal. And when it came to things like Amazon, Amazon, of course, made a killing because all of their stuff is, is delivered. And so that really is a tragedy that it wound up shaking out that way. And it bothers me a little bit because as much as I am glad that they're making this expansion and that they chose Montgomery as the place to do it, I'm bothered by the fact that the reason they're expanding so aggressively is because they just made money hand over fist during the pandemic. And that was at the expense of local places. I know that that genie is already out of the bottle. There's nothing we can do about it now. I mean, Alabama is opened back up and I get that. I'm just saying that it is unfortunate that knowing that this expansion was probably at least in some part financed by the misery of others. And I know that there's nothing we can really do about that, but it, it just, you know, it, it makes me a little sad that that is the case. Um, but, you know, still a net good for the city and state. I think this is a really big win for the state of Alabama, having those three facilities and for the city of Montgomery as a whole. So what we're going to do now is we're going to continue with some of our Veterans Day coverage with Scott Lockwood. He is a colonel, uh, or well, retired now, but colonel in the United States Air Force. And I am really, really looking forward to getting to have the opportunity to interview him. He's been a friend for a long time. So we have that coming up and that will be right after this short break. We'll be right back here on Tactics. Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Cockwit. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio. And now for a reading from the Social Justice Warrior Bible with Pastor Gregory Post. Welcome, fellow spiritual travelers. I'm Gregory Post, head pastor at the Eternal Living Word Transdenominational Church and Coffee House in Novato, California. And now it's time for another reading of the SJW Bible. Remember that each Social Justice Warrior Bible includes a CD of my favorite indie Christian rock bands. I'd tell you which bands are included on the CD, but you've probably never heard of them. Today's reading will come from Matthew 25 verses 14 through 30, which reads, For it is just like a man about to go on a backpacking tour through Eastern Europe, who called his citizen workers and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, 
and set off to the first Airbnb on his itinerary. Immediately, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground after receiving an environmental impact survey from the EPA and hid his project manager's money. Now, after a long time, the project manager of those citizen workers came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Project manager, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His project manager said to him, Well done, good and faithful citizen worker. Have this designer French coffee press. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Project manager, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His project manager said to him, Well done, good and faithful citizen worker. Take this digital album by a band nobody's ever heard of. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Project manager, I knew you to be a chill dude, so I went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. His project manager answered and said to them, You insensitive, greedy citizen workers, how could you bring back more money than him when you knew he hadn't made any? How do you think that makes him feel? Come to think of it, since you made more money than I left you with, you two probably exploited the working class through the capitalist system to get that money, didn't you? Therefore, take away the talents from them and redistribute the wealth between all three, so that they all have the same amount. From each according to his ability, to each according to his needs. The project manager never could figure out why he had such a hard time keeping good workers, and why the ones he had didn't do all that much. Wow, so inspirational. This has been a reading from the SJW Bible. And remember, the only truth that matters is your truth. Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Cockwit. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio. And good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. As always, we appreciate you joining us for the program for any amount of time you're willing to take out of your busy day to listen to us. I don't know why you would, but I'm glad that you're here regardless. No, seriously, we have a fantastic program today. We're going to be continuing our special Veterans Day event. And, uh, you know, we really appreciate that you support us and being able to do things like this. We appreciate you liking and subscribing because that helps us fight off the dark cyber overlords at YouTube that have, you know, they're mad at me right now. They've suspended me again. So that certainly helps if we get some likes and subscriptions. But we do have a very special guest who is a veteran himself. It's a friend of mine who actually goes to church with me, Scott Lockwood, a colonel in the United States Air Force. And so we bring him on right now. Welcome to the program, Scott. Thank you for being here. Oh, you bet. Thanks a lot, Caleb. I appreciate you asking me. Oh, yeah. Well, it was a slam dunk. In fact, uh, he was actually speaking at Faulkner's Chapel this morning, and I realized that I didn't, you know, I, I had dropped the ball and not gotten a guest for Veterans Day. And I was like, I don't know why I didn't ask Scott like a week ago, <laughs> but he was very generous with his time, willing to come on at, at short notice. So thank you for being here. I appreciate it. You bet. That's a good sign that uh, 
course, that I have no real job and that nothing's <laughs> happening in my life. So I was at your beck and call. <laughs> well, uh, however you wound up here, we're appreciative of it. I think okay. the Lord helps us out with that. Uh, but, you know, I know a little bit about your personal history, but I'm sure that I'm going to learn something here, too. So uh, just before we start and, and really get into the meat and potatoes, what we want to talk about here on Veterans Day, if you would give the audience just kind of a background and a, a summary of your military career. Okay. Yeah, I started in uh, 87, actually went into the uh, officer training program, uh, flight screening program to be a pilot in the United States Air Force. And uh, I remember they, you know, they threw a big party for me at Chandler, Arizona. You know, he's, he's joining the Air Force. He's going to go see the world. And uh, my first pilot training base was in Chandler, Arizona. So hmm. I was back in town after about uh, four months and people would see me on the streets, you know, and say, oh, you know, gee, Scott, that's that's too bad they didn't work out. You know, I'd be like, no, no, I'm out at the base flying uh, jets. And they're like, oh, that's okay. You know, that's all right. But uh, it did work out. It was a lot of fun to be back uh, in my hometown actually training. And that was a year at uh, Williams Air Force Base outside of Chandler. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then after that, I was a T-37 instructor out there. My wife and I lived out on base for a while. And uh, then they shut the gates of that place down um, mm -hmm. under one of the BRAC actions. And then I uh, went over to Enid, Oklahoma, finished up there, and then flew A-10s. I was at Pope Air Force Base back when it was an Air Force Base, and I uh, worked along with uh, Fort Bragg at Fayetteville. Uh, that was pretty good, pretty good duty there. We had deployed quite a few times, so I think my first year there at Pope, I was probably deployed about 270 days out of that first year and about 220 after that. Um, so it was, it, it was rough in a lot of ways. I, all I wanted to do is fly jets, but... Uh, there was a high price to pay. What had happened was really mm. uh, is uh, under the Clinton administration, they had drawn down uh, the foreign bases so much in Europe, uh, but that increased our overseas commitment by about 400%. So it was a little bit rough. And finally, in about June of 98, I got out uh, thinking about uh, children and being a father. And I didn't want to be an absentee father. So I got out and joined the Guard and I flew for the Air National Guard out of Battle Creek, Michigan. And then uh, got on with an airline and started flying with them. Uh, but then uh, after 9-11, uh, the airline started uh, taking a, a big crash and burn and then went back into the Air Force as an active guard and reserve AGR system. And then uh, had really great duty. I was very blessed. I didn't have to deploy. I was at headquarter jobs. I uh, worked at uh, Peterson at uh, Northcom, which is the uh, civil defense and civil support of uh, authorities there and natural disaster relief, that kind of thing. And then went to STRATCOM. I worked there, worked in Washington, D.C., uh, chief of rated management for their National Guard. Uh, so I did a lot of interesting things. Got to go to Army War College at Carlisle, Pennsylvania. It was a wonderful year. Um, just a, a really great experience uh, mm -hmm. to do that. Got a master's there. Uh, then I came back and then was the commandant of officer training school at Maxwell Air Force Base for three years. That was from 2013 to uh, the summer of 2016. And then I retired in 2016 and went back to the airlines. So that's really kind of it in a nutshell. It's 28 years total duty, 23 years active duty. You know, that's incredible. And one thing that I do love about talking to military people is when I ask them about their career and their story, it's never boring. That's the one thing. <laughs> that's like, right. it's, it's always lots of moving, lots of uh, yeah. going on different assignments. So. I think it was 14 different addresses is what uh, Kelly and I, we, we counted it up one time. So those were 14 different addresses. And that was, uh, yeah, that was a lot of moving. Yeah, I was talking to uh, your wife this morning right after you spoke. And uh, she was actually talking about that with uh, President Williams, of course, at Faulkner, who's talking about moving. And she was saying, 
yeah, that's the way it was with me and Scott. We, I just get home one day and he'd be like, well, we're moving to this place you've never heard of. And like, that's right. You would think we'd have been smart and kept our household goods very small. But I remember by the time, uh, towards the last, uh, the end moves there, I think we were filling up an entire semi-tractor trailer full uh, <laughs> with our goods. And I've got three daughters and all of their stuff. And so we were, yeah, we were definitely costing the military at that point. Yeah, I'm sure you, that you were, but uh, uh, it's, you know, it's just something that comes with the territory is that you do a lot of moving and we're very grateful that because we have Maxwell here that it somehow brought you here to us and uh, you've been a, a great addition to our church and somebody that uh, really look up to. So I appreciate, you know, the fact that the military brought you here. Well, thank you, Caleb. I appreciate that. So I wanted to talk to you about that. Is somebody like you that has a, a very long military career? I mean, you're you're a career military guy. Um, what kind of changes did you see over the years? I mean, like what was different from the time you started in the Air Force and, and by the time that you got out? What were the biggest changes you noticed? Well, that was that's a great question. Um, <clears throat> you know, the, the 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 United States Air Force for a long time prided itself in training like you fight, and uh, somewhere along the way we we kind of started losing our way, I believe, because what happened was uh, we ended up in a situation where sensitivities of, uh, you know, kind of the social construct started rearing its head. And, uh, and so then we had to become more and more sensitive to everybody else's sensitivities. And mm -hmm. so, um, you know, back when I, when I first got in, you know, they, they would yell at you and you would go through and then you would have to clean your room. And then whether it was clean or not, you know, somebody was going to find something, then you'd be doing burpees, push-ups, and you know, running at five in the morning or whatever. Well, all of that became abuse after the Lackland uh, sexual abuse scandal. Uh, they they kind of exploded that thing into some, uh, you know, monster that just enveloped a lot more than just sexual harassment, sexual abuse and assault. Uh, then it got to be everything, you know, everything was maltraining. And so by the time I ended, in fact, I ended where I started. I started at officer training school um, but mm -hmm. that was when it was back in uh, at uh, Lackland or a Medina complex in San Antonio. And then mm -hmm. I ended up being a commandant in the end of my career. And it was a completely different place because, uh, for instance, I'd, I'll just give you a great example. We had an mm -hmm. individual, uh, it was a 17-year airman, just a wonderful record. He's one of my best instructors. He's in military training instructor. So he wore the Smokey Bear hat and he was a drill instructor, uh, better known as a drill instructor. Right. And uh, after doing calisthenics in the morning, he said, all right, go ahead, hit the dorm, take a shower, come out, fall into place, uh, get in formation and, and we'll go off to breakfast. Well, they came out pretty quick and he asked him, he said, did you shower? And apparently the whole squadron said, well, yeah, we had, and, and he knew they hadn't. And so he said, okay. He said, listen, uh, you've lied to me. And that was an honor violation. And he could have just proceeded to start kicking them out and doing the paperwork. It would have been ugly, but it's, you know, what they, that's what they signed, that they weren't going to lie, cheat, or steal. And so he said, I'll tell you what. He says, uh, I'll, uh, I'll save you, though. He goes, you'll just answer to me. So he took them out and he started running. And then when they said, you know, hey, we got blisters. He's like, okay, fall out, step over here. Everybody take a breath, take a water. They started drinking water, rested up. All right, hit the track again. They started running. Uh, then they came back in. Somebody's knee was hurting. Okay, step aside. I don't want you to hurt your knee. Get some water. Everybody rest up. All right, start running again. Well, anyway, that went on through breakfast. So they missed breakfast. Uh -huh. Well, because they missed breakfast, that was called maltraining. That individual received an Article 15 from my boss, a general officer, and uh, it ruined his career. And he had to leave the Air Force 
um, uh, under less than uh, you know stellar conditions. And what a crying shame that uh, we ended up in a situation because I used to I used to look at these cadets and think, what movie on the military haven't you seen? You do understand what we're about. Like they would show up and they could do three push-ups, and then we would try to send them home and they would start crying and we would say, well, you know. Uh, wait, you have to do at least 20 or whatever their category was. Uh, but they, they said, well, our recruiter said we can get in shape while we're here. And I'm like, no, no, we don't have time for that. You need to hit the ground running. And uh, it was just a totally different game. And so uh, that, along with the sensitivities of everything else, um, with the men and women, uh, you know, being mixed and everything, was just a, is different. There's some good changes that happened. Uh, you could not uh, have a lot of the sexual harassment, and the sexual innuendos going on. We don't need those. We don't need to disrespect people. Uh, I have three daughters. How dare anybody think that they're going to make them feel uncomfortable by doing that? Uh, but also, we cast the net a lot wider than that. And so it got to a point where we could hardly really do anything without people complaining. And I remember an MTI getting in trouble because he, he said something like, well, what's the matter with you to the, one of the recruits? And they mm -hmm. said, well, that made me feel dumb. So... You know, we had to we had to nip all that in the bud, and so now uh, here we are. You know, worried about uh, the the gender of individuals and all of that, and how they, you know, commanders are having to offer whether they, you know, can have a sex change or whatever, uh, while the Russians and the Chinese are are out there and they're still firing weapons and crawling through the mud. So uh, uh, that's that's a lot of the changes that I saw, and that's the biggest ones that I think stand out in my mind was that uh, after a while you just kind of wondered what you know, where is this thing going to end up? And it wasn't going to be good. So, yeah, I, I do see a pretty a stark contrast in the Chinese military who just released a video or recruitment video of them breaking uh, concrete blocks with sledgehammers over their abs. And our newest PSA video where it's a military person talking about her lesbian moms. I mean, they, there's a pretty stark contrast yeah. there. Uh, that's that's for sure. Right. And if you know, the, the thing that's really going to hurt us very quickly and that's already hurt us, and I think you could see that even in Afghanistan uh, withdrawal, but that is that uh, when you start uh, discriminating on the basis of race and gender to be able to put people in certain positions, uh, then you can really lose sight of who is uh, best for the job. And, and, and we have got a, a horde of great, great individuals that are retiring right now mm -hmm. that Probably, if you looked at the track record from the very beginning, from a, from about the time you're a captain, they start selecting you and pulling you out, and then you realize you're on a track to go to senior leadership. It's very early on, and these individuals that hit all the bases, done all the right things, uh, but they came up on 06, 07, 08 boards, and uh, then they started falling out, and others were promoted in front of them because of who they were, and, uh, and that is going to really, really hurt uh, the effort in the long run. And all we were worried about, obviously, is how it looked. Well, we want this, you know, this regime to look this way. We want the demographics to reflect this. And uh, rather than saying, okay, who do you need to, to lead troops and make these decisions? And so that's really going to be something that comes back to haunt us, I believe. Well, you know, Scott, I'm a big believer in transparency and being able to see what's going on. I mean, one of the reasons that our military, kind of like you were pointing out in your talk today, is seen as a liberating force, not an oppressive force, at least in the minds of, of most Americans. Uh, the reason that, that we do, you know, have a special place in our heart for the military and the reason we have a day to celebrate them is because we have always sort of seen them as that, um, you know, that, that liberating force that is, is someone that defends our liberty as opposed 
to one that takes advantage of it. And I think one thing that we, uh, one of the parts of that, or I guess the rationale behind that is because we, we believe in their mission. And so I say all that to, to bring this up. I do understand that there is a level of accountability that we want in the military to the citizenry, but I also think we can't have every single member of the military constantly worried about how every little thing looks to the public. And I think that that's actually yeah. been something that's been devastating to um, the military. I say that as an outsider, of course, though. No, and I think I agree with you there. And I think that I, I understand that there are, uh, you know, that, that when, when, when we are too worried about what's happening, uh, and we have congressmen that, uh, and women that are just unwilling to stand up and do the right thing. And uh, they're cowing to their constituency, as radical as they may be, um, when, they, when they, you know, they're not too interested in the facts. I, I know that personally, mm -hmm. uh, I answered so many congressionals and so many complaints that people, you know, well, this was my dream and I was treated unfairly. And, and you know, you would think somewhere that they could have, somebody could have stopped it, but they had to send that down and it got rubber stamped at a, you know, second Air Force level. And then they got sent back down and, uh, the, you know, went through the uh, Air University and then it came to officer training school. And then we were running around trying to answer why we were kicking out some kid that had lied, cheated and steal and, and couldn't couldn't run a mile, you know. Yeah. Uh, but uh, we were always answering because, uh, you know, the politicians being who they were, they were so easy to uh, to cow to everybody rather than just go, hey, look, I think they've got this. And uh, and yeah, that's been, I think that is a problem. And just like you said, you know, you start answering to too many that don't understand the inside, uh, then that could be detrimental as well. It's a good point. Well, I tell you this, and I, when I ask this question, Scott, I want you to say to me, this is what I want you to say. Caleb, you're crazy. That's all in your imagination. <laughs> Uh, it's not really like that. I genuinely am concerned that what you're talking, the wave of people retiring and, and being taken out, it's not just uh, about race and demographics. Based on what happened uh, with, uh, you know, the, the what was it, like a, across the board, all branches of the military, the stand down order after January 6th and looking into people's background and trying to figure out, is this person a Trump supporter? Because if they right. are, I mean, like the, the skepticism that came after that, um, I, I've never seen anything like that. I think that they may—they might actually be trying to purge the military and make them ideologically in one. Uh, like they're—they're they're trying to get rid of all the people that might not think the way that the people in charge do now, and that scares me. And is—is is that a valid concern? Because again, I want you to say no, Caleb. They're not doing that. You're—you're you're overblowing it. But, but honestly, what is your take on that? Yeah, Caleb, you're crazy, and you're no. You, you know, you're, you're crazy anyway, but well, that's uh, true. But the, un the unfortunate part, Caleb, is that's absolutely what's happening. And uh, if you look at history, if anyone is not afraid of taking the military and purging out a conservative political view or somebody that disagrees with the wokeness that's happening, if that doesn't frighten you, because remember, a coup will never happen. And you can never have an overthrow and you can never turn around and oppress your own people without what? The, without the you have help to have of the, the military. military. You have right. to have the military. You have to have the military. Well, what they're doing is they're purging out individuals now that stand for freedom and liberty. And that's the discussion that's off the table in politics now. It's about uh, wokeness and social engineering. It's all about uh, some kind of justice that's, you know, a justice that the left gets to define like, uh, you know, environmental justice, whatever that is. But uh, if it's if that's what's happening and you end up with a, 
uh, force that's going to do the bidding of a radical leftist, well, then what difference is it going to be whether it's a Che Guevara in charge or anybody else? Because that's that's what you're going to end up with. And I think that's what they're aiming for. Uh, that's what's happened, obviously, with the FBI. They're making mm-hmm. raids on, you know, conservative reporters' houses and things that they wouldn't have done at all, you know, some years back. And you're thinking, wow, uh, you know, we always ask ourselves, how can a postmodernist industrialized nation like Germany end up in the situation that they were in mm-hmm. and doing that kind of thing with the Gestapo? And, uh, and I think you're watching it happen. I think you're watching, uh, the, you know, the freedom, uh, you know, kind of the last gasping breath of it uh, in America as we're so concerned with supposedly other things and, uh, you know, the weaponized racism and, the, you know, all the uh, ethnic discussions that are going on, xenophobia, and everybody's a phobic about this, that, or the other that the left stands for. And mm-hmm. if you're against them, you know, you've got some kind of deranged thing. So... Yeah, I think you're you're absolutely right. I think the fear is real, and um, and you I know think what's, that's what's happening. What's really sad about that is the military was, you know, I'm not saying that there were never problems with that in the past, because obviously there were. They're well documented through history. But one of the great things that I loved about the military, despite having never served myself, is it's it's a uniting thing. I mean, you talk about the everybody being concerned about the racism and xenophobia. When you put on that that uniform, that goes away. And that's the way it should be. Like, you don't care whether they're black or uh, Hispanic or whatever, Arab. If they're wearing the uniform and they're willing to lay down their life for their country, I mean, that's your brother in arms. And so I always kind of thought the military was, was great at kind of erasing those lines. Yeah, that is true. And so it has to, you have to bring it back up and you have to kind of wire brush people and make it a sensitive uh, issue again, and that of course mm-hmm. that's happened all across the board, even in the in the civilian population, right? Where twenty years ago we weren't talking about all this, and now suddenly, you know, every every child that's growing up that's you know sixteen years old, suddenly their 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 big moral issue of the day is racism, and that used not to be so. But the military is a perfect example, like you said, where you're lockstep with those you know brothers in arms, and and in the end, people would tell you in the military is that when you're going into battle or you're doing something, it's yeah, you know, you may have signed up for country, you may have signed up for freedom, you may have signed up all, but when the bullets start flying, you're right there at the edge. It's it's all about just coming together for each other. It's about the guy on your right. It's about the guy on your left and uh, the gal behind you, and you're 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 coming together. And 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 what a shame to start mm-hmm. splintering all of that and and being so divisive and uh, you know putting suspicion on everybody and you know for them to come up with. Uh, such ideas like when the military said, well, Black Lives Matter is an apolitical organization, but uh, but you can't fly a, a flag with a thin blue line on it or whatever, because, you know, that's that's a controversial thing. And so uh, just the very fact that they have such a radical political view is, is really detrimental to the, you know, homogenous nature of the military, what it otherwise would be. Uh, so they've, they've, you know, they've, they've tried to do everything, right? They've tried to right. they tried to put pic- people's picture in there, and then they took the pictures away. Then they tried to mask their identity and their gender and their race, and then that didn't work, and then they didn't have the right people promoted. So now they want to put points, different points on different systems, and it's just they're so concerned with all this uh, rather than just, you know, getting on with the business at hand, which is, right. I, remember, I remember years ago, Caleb, this mm-hmm. has been a long time ago, but mm-hmm. years ago, at Squadron Officer School, it's now Squadron Officer College, but at Squadron Officer School, we had an individual walk in, stepped up there in, in Montgomery, Alabama, stepped up on the stage, and he goes, you know what? He goes, uh, I don't care about 
segregation or desegregation? He goes, you know why we desegregated? Because we fight better that way, because morale is better, and we fight better as a nation that way. He says, otherwise, I could care less whether we desegregate, segregate, whatever. He says, in other words, he goes, I'm not trying to be insensitive, but he says, I'm telling you, the military is out there to kill people and break things. It's out there mm -hmm. to do violence. And he says, you know, that should be what everything is thought of is like, how efficient can you do to be in, uh, you know, be in that, uh, that blocking force or that guarding force, the attacking force. And now we're so just all concerned about everything else, but, uh, and how is it not going to suffer? How is the tip of the spear not going to suffer when we're so worried about what the, you know, every little piece of wood that the shaft is made up of? And so uh, I think your fear is just, just really relevant. And that, and that is sad to say. Well, and, and I don't remember, granted, like I said, being somebody that's looking at on the outside looking in, uh, I don't remember a whole lot of war movies where guys are like down in the trenches and like before they go out and, and have the guy behind them covering like, by the way, what do you think the top tax bracket should be? Like, that's not, <laughs> not, not really a concern right, right. then. Right. Not saying they don't talk about it in their off time, but you're yeah. right. I mean, that and that's the thing. It, it does bring people together of different, yeah. I, you know, I have a buddy that was um, uh, army and uh, was the best man at his gay brother's wedding. I disagree with him on virtually everything. <laughs> But, you know, if he was a good soldier, so what? I don't care that his politics are different. Um, but, you know, I, I did want to just kind of circle back to uh, borrow Jin Saki's line. Um, I did want to uh, just circle back to something that you said with uh, Afghanistan, which you kind of briefly touched on. Um, what what could we have, because I, I mean, the, the last stand on that was really an airfield, and so your Air Force. So what, what could we have done to fix that? Like, is... Because the way that we hear it talked about is, well, that's how it goes. There wasn't really anything else we could do. If we were going to pull out of Afghanistan eventually, then it, it had to be that way. Um, first of all, is that correct? And if not, what could we have done to make it you know, not as, as much of a disaster as it was? Well, the first thing we should have done is kept politics out of it. We should have kept the president from uh, running around saying, well, this is the date we're going to be out because the Taliban told us to be out on that date. We should have got out on our own good time, which meant we'll get out when we're good and ready, when things are set up, when we've gotten all the non-combatants out and everybody that's vulnerable and honor all of our vulnerabilities are covered. And why would it have to be one last airfield that you're holding as you're running out while everybody's surrounding the fence there and busting down the gates? Mm -hmm. It's uh, there are there are a lot of ways to extricate yourself, uh, you know, from a battle. It probably wouldn't have been good and easy, but you know, it's uh, it's different than if if uh, you know if I want to step out of the ring, you know, the octagon. Uh, if I give you a good licking first, and you're over there in the corner licking your wounds, and then I climb out, that's different than you beating up on me as I'm trying to get out of the octagon. And that's the easiest way I could say it. I mean, mm. we had them on the ropes in so many ways, different ways and uh, shapes and forms. So if you keep them in a situation where uh, we still have the upper hand and we still had the aggressive force there, uh, then we call the shots and then we're able to do uh, the things on the timing in the place of our choosing, which is really what war is all about. Right. We, you get to leave on your own terms. You get to leave on your own terms. You get to tack on your own terms. You get to stay if you want it on your own terms or whatever. But everything is at a place and a time of our choosing. And that is strategy of war. We gave up all of that when we started announcing dates and places and we're, you know, I mean, it looks like. Right. We, it wasn't the premiere of a movie. <laughs> right. I mean, this looked like. 
you know, the the Roman hordes or something coming against, you know, some some poor, you know, battle out there where you see nothing but shields and spears and, and swords laying in the battlefield and one side's running off. And that's essentially what's happened, right? We've we've mm-hmm. left everything over there, uh, couldn't get out of there fast enough. And uh, at least we've got one really great positive note. And that was the president said, we will not have a Saigon again with people hanging on the gear of a, of a helicopter or a skid of a Huey. So we turn that into a C-17 in a gear well. So I guess we're better off that way somehow. Well, technicality. <laughs> technicality. Uh, technicality. It's like, uh, you know, Biden saying the other day, uh, well, technically, or actually he didn't even use the word technically, that would have made it a little bit better, but saying, oh no, that's a garbage report about the uh, amount right. of money we're going to be giving illegal immigrants. <laughs> Like, yeah. no, and like literally 12 <laughs> hours later, someone in the Biden administration, no, he's perfectly comfortable with that figure. I was like, oh, okay. Well, okay. Yeah. yeah. If that's not proof that he's being handled, I don't know what is. But getting back to what we're uh, getting back to military issues, um, I wanted to get your take on this too, because frankly, I, I thought about just asking you off the air, but I think the audience would appreciate it too, because I just wanted to hear what you have to say on it. Uh, what about the whole thing with General Milley telling China he'd give him a heads up uh, if there was any kind of nuclear strike coming or something like that? So if I and and I and I was preface this by saying I have no idea what was said when it was said. I haven't read about it. I've I've stayed out of that one. I haven't. I, I you know I'm just gonna say okay. if that happened, okay, and he was not told to be. Uh, you, you know, uh, in some kind of diplomatic way mm-hmm. that he was doing that as some kind of strategy that the military set him up for, then, uh, you know, shame on him. Shame on him. You don't go and, and, and undermine, uh, you know, your civilian leadership and, and put everybody else's lives at stake with some kind of assurance to somebody in a theater. Uh, first of all, <laughs> First of all, anybody that's ever worked alongside a senior leadership when you're in the field like that or in your other places, I mean, mm-hmm. they're not free to say whatever they want to say. They don't sit around and do, uh, you know, whatever, we just kind of make it up as they go. It is so structured. It is so disciplined. What can be said, what can't be said, what can be promised, what can't be promised. I mean, these things aren't just done willy nilly. And for them to be from senior leadership to the U.S. to China saying, hey, this is what we won't do or what we can't do, uh, to say that nobody else knew about that, it's just it's beyond me to think that he's going to be able to try to defend that at all. If that happened, like I said, right, sure. if somebody's a big Millie supporter and they go, he never said that Lockwood, okay, fine, you know, great, you know, it's a better point for him. If it did happen, though, there's not much he can stand on. But here, here's the, the worst part about this is there is nobody that's being accountable anymore in senior leadership. Think about that. There's just no accountability. These guys are getting away with, you got a coup on the president that happened. You got the FBI, the DOJ, everybody's running around doing whatever they want to do. And uh, I just haven't seen any accountability at all. You know, nobody's been brought up on any charges. There's been no investigation. Nobody's been arrested. And, uh, and apparently, uh, you know, unless you're a conservative and make a phone call that, uh, you know, to the Ukraine you know, then, then, then that's a big deal. And uh, so I just think it's, you know, we know what all this is about. This is a, uh, you know, it's a, it's an unjust kind of world. And those that uh, have power are taking more power and they're going to use it. And they've showed that they have no, no self-control whatsoever in it. So, Well, and from the civilian side, history has shown if you want to make a civilian population angry enough to rebel, 
one of the key factors that you have to have is the belief that there is no accountability. If you believe, if you make them believe that there is no recourse, that there is no way for them to vote themselves out of a situation or whatever, that's what makes people desperate. And the idea that you had a, a person just unilaterally decide, you know, I, I will not going to listen to the civilians representative in the military. I'm just going to do whatever I want because I think it's what's actually best for the country. Well, you may believe that, but if that's the case, you need to resign and then go to the, the media and tell them, you know, your concerns. You don't just subvert it and take it upon yourself to do that. And yeah. that that's what, you know, that that's what really concerned me on that one. Yeah. If you if you look back at, uh, you know, say the Obama administration and look at General Ham, uh, General McChrystal, you just you think different individuals and why they were fired, why they stepped down. Uh, why some senior leaders under, say, the Clinton regime, you know, they, they volunteered to step down because they disagreed with them. Uh, it's, there's a lot smaller infraction than what this would be that right. would cause an individual for the civilian leadership to say, we've lost confidence in your ability to lead. That's just a way of saying, look, you're not in my boat. We're not on the same page. I'm going to have to put you to the side. Thanks for your service. Uh, that, that's happened all the time. Uh, but for well, and I'll say this, Scott, just I don't mean to cut you off, but if Milley had come out and said, look, I, I think Trump's dangerous. I don't like his policies. I might have wound up disagreeing with him, but I would have respected his conviction for doing that. I really would have. Right. Right. And I think that's what you expect. Right. I mean, you expect that well, when there's a point when you can no longer with a clear conscience serve the civilian leadership that you're under. That's what you do. You resign right. and people act like, well, no, they couldn't resign when, uh, for instance, uh, President Biden said, this is the way we're going to withdraw from Afghanistan. Well, what was the military going to do about it? Well, yeah, certainly if you kept if you stayed in there punching away saying, hey, yeah, I'm his boy, uh, then you don't have anything to say about it. But the but the past shows you what would have happened. Mm -hmm. uh, they would have gone to him and said, look, with all due respect, sir, you know that we disagree with it. This is why. Uh, and where are those days, by the way, where we have such integrity and in leadership? You know, when Eisenhower was uh, cutting the budget after World War II and after the Korean War, you know, he was just he was just decimating the military budget. And Arlie Burke, who was the chief of staff uh, at that time, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, he's talking all over saying, "Wow, this is going to this is going to put us in huge danger. This is going to put us in huge danger. This is not the time to, to save money. And Eisenhower was saying, no, I think this is the time. And uh, so Eisenhower calls him over to the White House. He says, Arlie, he said, and of course, they're both World War II fame, right? But Arlie Burke right. was some commander of a PT boat or a, a destroyer, I believe. And uh, of course, Eisenhower was the uh, Allied Supreme Commander in uh, D-Day. But so, so he says, you know, I hear you're over there rabble-rousing, you know, in, uh, in the Pentagon there. And he he says, well, I disagree with you, and I think you're going to put America at grave danger. And so Eisenhower looks at him thinking, thinking how this is going to go. And he says, you know, we're both going to testify in front of Congress, in front of the budget hearings next week. He goes, if you say that and I say what I'm saying, he says, this is going to be a huge political fallout. and It's going to be really messy. Mm -hmm. And Arlie Burke says something that's incredible. He looks at Eisenhower, his boss, the president of the United States, and he says, you know what, sir, you didn't hire me to be your political advisor. You hired me to give you the best military advice I can give you. And I think you're putting the United States at grave danger. And so <laughs> Eisenhower's got a choice now. Right. And so he's thinking about it and he contemplates this. And for here's this great leader and shows incredible moral character. And he goes, you know, he goes, you know what, Arlie? He says, uh, I agree with you. And he says, uh, 
He says, you're right. And he goes, I tell you what, I'll go and I'll say what I have to say. And you go and you testify and you say what you have to say. And I'll deal with the political fallout. And the aftermath of this is, after that, Eisenhower called Arlie Burke to the White House mm -hmm. many times, and most of the time was not even discussing military affairs. He asked him about State Department. He asked him about the uh, interior. He asked him about uh, other things that were happening with the economics, the budget, taxation. And, and I always used to ask the commandant, you know, the uh, cadets, why do you think that happened? And why was he asking Arlie Burke about all these things? And it's because he found an individual that would shoot straight and tell him the truth and wasn't trying to cow to him, wasn't just a yes man. And so he respected that so much. And yet today uh, we saw the firings, like for instance, under President Obama, he was firing people right and left. If he didn't like your language, if he didn't like you, uh, the way you talked about a Muslim terrorist instead of an extremist, you were gone. You know, it's just all this, we can't have anybody around the president that disagrees with him. Um, and then on the other hand, you can see the detriment of what happens when you uh, when you when you don't get people that are lockstep and pro-American, like uh, I think Trump kind of misunderstood and mis you know uh, really underestimated uh, what was going to happen there with individuals that were just out to get him and do everything they could. But uh, I just I love that story about Arlie Burke and Eisenhower about what that's like to be accountable, to be have some moral character. And to be able to say, you know what, you should be able to stand up and disagree. And then uh, we'll see what kind of leaders, uh, you know, you have. But in the end, of course, uh, if he told Arlie Burke uh, which way to salute, which way to march, he would have had to have done it. Or if he didn't agree, he would have had to step back. You, you know, step I, aside. I think that's just a fantastic segue to ask you this. And, and this will be really kind of the, the question that we wrap on because I think it's a good stopping point. We have a tradition in the military that goes all the way back to George Washington about holding people accountable and expecting high moral character out of our soldiers. I mean, I know it's different today, but back in George Washington's day, he didn't allow any of his military personnel from officers to, to privates. They weren't allowed to use foul language. They weren't allowed to consume alcohol. And he required each and every one of them to attend a church service on Sunday. He's the one that started the chaplain program. And so I just wanted you to kind of talk about that and uh, somebody who doesn't have as, as strong a connection to it as you do. Um, what, what has happened to that, that sort of sense in the military that we're supposed to be people of a, of a high moral caliber serving this country? I think that's an excellent question. And I, and I failed to mention that when you asked me, what were the changes in the military that I saw uh, over my tenure? And one of them was, is uh, we had this incredible uh, loss of religious freedom, particularly just the, the Christian religion, what we would call Christian religion, mm -hmm. uh, as I was in, and things were changing very drastically. Uh, and that had to be addressed by Congress, which it shouldn't have had to been. But a lot of people don't know this, but the Uniform Code of Military Justice gives the responsibility to the commander for the moral turpitude of the individuals under his command. And uh, some years back when at officer training school, uh, they had some mission statement that said, well, we were going to be culturally aware, we we're going to be expeditionary minded, uh, we're going to be, you know, professional, this, that and the other. And I came in there on my first or second day, I started reviewing all the documents and I read that and I said, well, but what's the most important thing that we're doing here? I mean, I, this sounds like a political statement that, you know, what a politician would be happy with. But what is it that we're doing here in these in these just few months and weeks that we have these cadets? And I kept saying that, and people just didn't, they, they just had a hard time grasping it. And finally, we sat down, we started tossing some stuff around, and I said, 
this is what we're doing. We're making officers a moral character. And so I changed the mission statement to say, we are making leaders of moral character. And so then <laughs> as people started looking around, scratching their heads and going, what, what's wrong with this guy? Uh, we started, had to define what is moral character? Why is that important? Why is it that we want leaders of moral character? And so I went through and I mean, I named names. I talked about uh, Admiral uh, Giardini from uh, Stratcom. He was the vice commander of Stratcom when I was there. Uh, there was no love lost between us, by the way, but, but <laughs> Admiral Giardini, he, after I left, which he, he, he was a really, really brilliant guy, a lot smarter than I was, but he, he basically didn't know why I was there. And after a while, I had a hard time answering it myself. And I thought, you know what? He's right. I don't know why I'm here. I might as well leave. So I did. But shortly <laughs> after that, Admiral Giardini got caught and he was uh, handing off counterfeit, or counterfeit poker chips across the river in a casino. And what was happening, he was gambling all night long, had counterfeit poker chips, and then was coming back to work at Stratcom. And he put our nuclear surety uh, in jeopardy. And he was a guy that was the vice commander of strategic command with all of these weapons at his disposal and his responsibility. And yet it was such a blackmailable type of fence that you'd think, well, you know, if the, if the wrong spies had gotten a hold of him at the right time, boy, that sure. guy would have been selling out like a, like a songbird. So uh, he ended up getting arrested. And I used examples like that, as hurtful as they may be to his family. But I used examples to the cadets to say, look, I'm telling you that you won't know all the answers and we don't know what's coming around the corner. But if you're not an officer of moral character, you will never be able to na navigate all of these you know, difficult, confusing situations. And so we started down that road, making officers and leaders of moral character, defining what it is. And then this is what really, really hit us where we started getting in hot water was the Jags wanted to say, well, if they bust three tests, you can get them out. If they bust a PT test for the second time, you can kick them out. Uh, if they do this, if they lie, cheat, or steal, and they do this, that, or the other, you can kick them out. And I said, well, uh, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to ask each one of my instructors, and I'm going to say, you're an officer in the United States Air Force. I'm going to trust your judgment, and I'm going to support you. But the question I'm going to ask, is this person going to be a leader of moral character? And I said, if your answer is no, we're going to get rid of them. Well, the Jags and the lawyers just had a field. They were just oh, like, I bet. oh, you know, they were just like, no, you can't do that. We can't, whoa, you're going to, you know, they were just starting. I'm like, you know what? First of all, thanks for your advice as a legal team. I'm a commander, you're not. And so I started, uh, started down that road. And sometimes we were doing that. It didn't happen all the time, but we had a few individuals, uh, individuals that maybe were, uh, you know, on pornographic sites or something that everybody was like, well, you know, we'll talk to them, we'll counsel them, we'll do this, that, the other. And I go, hey, you know what, as far as I'm concerned, this guy's on his best behavior for nine and a half weeks. This is the best he's ever going to be. Guess what he's going to be as an officer in the United States Air Force and a leader of people? He's going to be a problem. So we would kick him out and say he's not a leader of moral character. And uh, and so that that's kind of that, that. It's funny that you brought it up because it was a huge, huge push of mine. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know how long they probably put up with that after I left, but they probably changed it back to, well, you know, diplomatic language or something. Well, I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, just appreciate you and your service and your focus on, um, you know, having that high moral character, because I think it's the most important thing that anyone can can experience. And one of the things that I think has attracted people to the military and, and to military leadership for a long time is because of its character building uh, qualities. And I, I just think that now we almost think that you can have character without having a spiritual center. 
uh, or no, some it, something like that. And it just can't, it doesn't work. No, it doesn't work. No, absolutely not. What man thinks, uh, so is he. And, and we know that to be true, Caleb. And when you, you know, just like you could read a, a book about Nazi Germany and, and they'll talk about all different reasons why it happened or whatever. Um, but I'm, and I am very fond of pointing out that those doctors that were operating experimentally and doing experiments and they were doing all that, they were Darwinist. And they were talking about the superior race. They were talking about who uh, hadn't uh, evolved, uh, who didn't deserve to live. They were talking about a supreme race. It was all Darwinism. And once you lose your mooring uh, and believing of the God of heaven and that he is the ultimate moral authority, mm -hmm. you can justify anything. And that's what history teaches us. You yes. can justify anything. Well, Scott, uh, I tell people that I would have been in the concentration camps and they say well you're not you're not jewish you're not a gypsy i was like i know i'm white but here's the thing that you may not know there were several different labels inside the concentration camps they had different colored triangles that they would say and they had one that was purple and that was for bible scholars i'm a master's student in bible i would have been in the concentration camps and what that tells you is Anybody that is well acquainted with God's word is a threat to tyranny. Absolutely. Because they answer to God and not to man. Absolutely, because they cannot be controlled that way. You're exactly right. All right. Well, I appreciate you, brother. Thank you for coming down here. And uh, it is Veterans Day. Thank you for your service. I certainly appreciate it. I know my audience does, too. Thank you, Caleb. I appreciate you. Thank you so much. All right, brother. It's been, been a pleasure to talk to you. That was Scott Lockwood, a colonel in the Air Force, retired now. We are so grateful to have him on the program, and we're going to be back in just a second with more on tactics. Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Cockwit. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio. That's right, gang. It is time for yet another edition of Breaking the Internet. So we are going to go through some memes today, which I know surprises nobody. Usually this thing winds up being either videos or memes. Uh, but yeah, there's been memes circling around here recently. And it has to do with the recent gas prices and blaming Joe Biden for them. So I wanted to ask this question if these are actually true. So let's go ahead and look at a couple of these. There's been literally dozens, if not hundreds, of these things floating around, so I just picked two random ones. Uh, the, you can see here, this is the, the kind of claim that you'll see. Um, you know, Trump with the $1.22 gas versus Biden with the $5.59 gas. And then over there, uh, you see, in case you don't forget, and then on the other one, for those of you listening on the audio-only podcast, there's another one here that says, don't blame me when you voted for this, and it's got $4.27 gas, and then because I voted for this underneath it, and it has $1.74 gas. So are these things fair? Are they really um, what they are cracked up to be? Because there are some people justifiably giving some blowback on this. For example, there's been some rebuttal on this that it says it's been to point out that the low prices were due to the pandemic when... President Donald Trump, they're, they're saying these are Trump's gas prices. There is an element of truth to that. And we're going to go over that and go over exactly how much of a difference that makes. Because when you look at those gas prices, those are extremely low gas prices. And so part of that had to do with the collapse of demand. And with the pandemic, there just weren't that many people driving because you couldn't go anywhere. And so you had a, a global drop in demand, which meant we had way more supply than demand. 
ergo the low gas prices. And so they're saying, well, this is just, it's because of the pandemic. And so those things aren't reflective of reality. And you also saw this rebuttal as well, which I actually thought was kind of humorous. So you'll see this one here. Uh, the first picture, it says 2008, and it's got gas at 4.59 a gallon. And underneath, it's a picture of a calm-looking, I guess that's a chihuahua. You, you dumb libs, the president doesn't control gas prices. And then right next to it, 2021, there's an angry chihuahua going, why is Joe Biden doing this to me and seeing the gas prices at 2.79? And so that one is probably a little bit dated because gas hasn't been 279 anywhere in a few months. So I'm not sure exactly what they were pulling that from. I'm, I'm sure it was in the Biden administration. I remember when gas was around there. I think that was like a, about maybe May, April, something like that. So it has happened. I'm guessing that gas price is somewhere in the Obama. Or Obama. I mean, it really is the Obama administration, but the Biden administration. Anyway, so First of all, political hypocrisy is always funny. I don't care who it's aimed towards, and that one's kind of aimed at Bush. There are people that were kind of uh, offering excuses for President Bush when the gas prices were in the you know, four, four and a half dollar range. And now that Biden's gas prices, which, you know, most recently when I checked, gas price was floating around 325 here in the state of Alabama. So, there were people that were complaining about the are complaining about the Biden gas prices now, not complaining about the Bush gas prices. But I will say this: I think every single president gets more credit and more blame for gas prices than they actually do, because they don't control it, but they do have an influence over it, and so that can't be discounted. And the thing about the political hypocrisy of people doing that, here's the thing: I know that there are people that were absolutely frustrated and eat up with Joe Biden's gas prices, and I'm one of them. But when it was Bush, weren't necessarily all that bothered by it. But I contend that those people are a minority. Because I can remember on many occasions when I was in college and a teenager in high school, which would have been in the, the Bush years, I remember quite a few times, actually, where I would hear conservatives at different rallies, that kind of thing, complain about gas prices and specifically complain about George W. Bush not doing enough to resolve them. I remember I was actually at a gathering where the Secretary of Agriculture for George W. Bush, so it was, I'm not saying there, there might not have been any Democrats in there. This happened at Tuskegee. I'm not saying that there were no Democrats there, but it seems unlikely that a bunch of Democrats would have come out to see the Secretary of Agriculture for a Republican president. So I'm guessing the room was at the very least mostly Republicans. And I happen to know that the guy that asked this question is a Republican or at least a conservative because I actually knew who the guy was. He stood up and the question that he asked when it got to the Q&A thing was he asked why George W. Bush was not doing enough to solve gas prices and talked about how ridiculous they are. And when he said that, the room full of Republicans cheered. So I don't think this was even a majority opinion within the Republican Party that George W. Bush bore no blame for the high gas prices. So the, the meme is somewhat constructed on a false premise that nobody on the right had any issue with gas prices back in the George W. Bush years. I just don't think that's correct. I'm sure that there were some because there's always some political people that to them, politics is just a sport like pulling for Auburn or Alabama in football. And so 
They will defend anything that their team does and attack anything the other team does. Yes, those people do exist. I understand that, and it is funny. I actually like making fun of those people, regardless of which direction I'm making fun of them on. But I'm just saying, as a whole, I don't think Republicans, as a party, were just letting Bush off the hook left and right for those gas prices. So that's a little bit of a misnomer there. And the big question here, because this is what we really want to get to, is, is it true? Is this actually a correct statistic to show those gas prices side by side with one another? And I mean this both ways. Because, frankly, not to get ahead of myself, but I thought that both memes contained a, a decent amount of misinformation. So the way that we're going to resolve this is let's just look at the facts. Let's just look at the data because you guys know that is always my solution to these kinds of things. So let's go ahead and look at that and pull that up. There we go. All right. So these are average gas prices from the year 2017 to 2021. And you'll notice that the reason that I'm using these stats is because it would contain years that had no pandemic. And so now we're comparing apples to apples as opposed to just looking at pandemic prices versus post-pandemic prices where there's an increase in demand. So these are the Trump years, January to October, because October just ended. So I also wanted to take out seasonality. So instead of just using whole years, we're only going to use January to October since this year only has those months to compare it to. So January to October with Donald Trump, the average gas price in those months, $2.51. January to October 2018, $2.86. January to October 2019, $2.69. And finally, January to October 2020, now this was after the pandemic, $2.26. So you'll see that the pandemic certainly had an effect on gas prices if you compare it to the other years that Trump was in office. But really not that much. And while he did have a slightly higher year on gas prices in 2018, that was presumably because of the tariffs and some issues that happened with the trade war, after his drilling policies went into effect and we see his policy sort of settle in, we see it on the decline. And I don't know what it would have been in 2020 had it not been that way, but you know, presumably it would have been pretty close to the year before or maybe even a little bit higher or lower. We can only speculate on that because we only have three years to compare it to, but the point is Trump's average gas price is somewhere in the 260, 270-ish range, something like that. Now let's look at Joe Biden's numbers. January to October 2021, $3.02. And by the way, I should also note on this that while this is the correct figure here for Joe Biden's gas prices, I want to also bring up that this thing has been on an upward trajectory. So yes, this average is about roughly 21 cents more than even Trump's highest year on averaging gas prices, January to October. However, the difference is Joe Biden also has part of his pandemic prices playing into this. And so some of the pandemic prices, those really low gas prices, lower than any of the ones that we're seeing on this chart, were still around when he took office. And so he's got gas prices in the low $2 range, like $2 to $2.30 in January, February, March, and that's when they started to climb. The thing that is different about the Trump years than it is from the Biden years is in the Biden years, oil prices and gas prices are on a steady increase the entire time. You know, in, in the Trump years, they fluctuate a little bit, they get a little higher in the summer, they get a little lower 
in the fall, in the spring, and then there's a little spike around holidays or whatever. Not so in the Biden administration. He started out really low and just kept climbing higher and higher and higher and higher. And so that's a, a marked difference in this. So it's actually even worse than it looks. Because, like I said, there's only about a 21 cent difference in uh, in Donald Trump's highest year. It, there's a much larger difference in his averages. Um, but if in Trump's absolute highest year for gas prices that you can compare him to in 2018, there's still no comparison if you look at the trajectory because we are projected to go higher. And Biden also has the benefit of his stat having a little bit of the COVID-19 prices that were uh, artificially lower than they should have been. And so this is a problem that is only going to get worse. However, what I just did was I showed you a fair comparison. Because people that were showing you the $1.79 gas or whatever, those are people that are Trump cheerleaders that are just trying to paint him in the best possible light. And, you know, I wanted Trump to win the last election. I'm not anti-Trump on that sense. But what I am saying is, if you look at the actual numbers and do a fair comparison, the numbers stack up pretty good anyway. Not, not as drastic as that meme would show. But you can show the actual numbers to people and then you're not misleading them and they still get the point. See, if, the Joe, if Joe Biden's uh, oil policies had an effect on that, that makes a difference. But if we were just looking at raw prices under the two presidents, they would seem as though Joe Biden would be doing fine if you know they were artificially lowered for the pandemic and he brought the gas prices back up only to pre-pandemic levels. In other words, like the January to October for 2019 that Trump had $2.70. Okay, well, if it had been around there, that would have been not great, and we probably would have complained about it because you know we got used to the, the lower gas prices. But that would have been pretty comparable to what Donald Trump averaged in the same time span. But that ain't what happened. They went up by a substantial amount, and they got to pre-pandemic levels and kept climbing. That's the difference. And so while it is fair to blame at least part of this on Joe Biden, you don't have to fudge the numbers and use the two most extreme examples that you can find to be able to make this point. And if, you, if you're honest with your, your math and honest with your statistics, you're more likely to get somebody to actually agree with you. But luckily, you know, Joe Biden was able to wake up from his nap and, and take his Metamucil and explain exactly why gas prices are as bad as they are. So let's listen to the president's excuse here. First of all, the significant reason why prices are up is because of COVID affecting the supply chain. I mean, I know you, I'm not trying to be instructive. I know you know this. Number one. Why are you saying Number that? two, um, if you take a look at, uh, you know, gas prices and you take a look at uh, oil prices, uh, that is a consequence of, thus far, the refusal of, uh, of uh, Russia or, uh, or the OPEC nations to uh, pump more oil. Yeah. So it's all Russia's fault and all OPEC's fault. I tend to remember that it wasn't that long ago that Joe Biden actually approved an oil pipeline, you know, after killing the Keystone Pipeline from Canada to America that would have helped with this, that he actually and his administration approved and went through with a Russian pipeline to Germany 
which should have decreased oil prices because it cuts out part of their transportation fee. And so the oil companies that are pumping things out of Russia would be better off. You know who denied that request multiple times? The Trump administration. So the Trump administration that was supposed to be just, a, you know, a Russian's cat's paw, just, you know, Putin's over there with the strings, like the puppet master, just pulling his strings and making Trump do whatever he wants to. That was the sort of the idea that the media was trying to sell to people what was going on. Yet he denied Putin having that because it would be a, comp a competition for American oil and for other oil producers around the world. That he doesn't want to approve, but then Joe Biden comes in and approves it and somehow he's the one that's not in Russia's pocket. How much sense does that make? But getting off of that for a second, he explains that really the people to blame are Russia and the ocean nations. Oh, really? Well, then why didn't Trump have this same problem before the pandemic? I mean, we still had Russia and OSHA around then. I mean, they those two things are more than two years old. So what was going on there? See, the thing is, the reason that these are different, because the Russia and, and OSHA nations' production was roughly the same. They might have gone up a little bit because of competition, but what's actually happening here is that with Trump's policy, where he was not only in favor of the Keystone Pipeline, but more importantly, uh, was in favor of oil companies and, and wanted to give them more drilling permits and moved us towards energy efficiency, we were actually self-sufficient on energy with our own oil for the first time in history, a feat that even George Bush said was completely impossible and we'll never get there. We were actually completely energy independent. And because of that, other countries had to pump more oil to lower the prices to compete with American oil. You see, that's how you solve the problem. You hit them in the pocketbook. So President Biden acting like he's just this helpless, feeble weakling, which I guess is pretty easy for him because that's what he actually is, but acting like he has absolutely no control over the gas prices and can't do a dang thing about oil and about Russia and, and OSHA not pumping more oil. Oh, I can't, I can't do anything. Is it putting time yet? That that's that's Biden. He he has no. It, he acts as though there's nothing he can do about this. But here's the thing, because it's always fair. Like I said, presidents get both more blame and more credit for oil prices than they probably should. So now we must ask ourselves the question: Is there anything the Biden administration actually did? that caused these increases? Well, there's a few things. First of all, he had several day one executive orders. First day of being the president of the United States, he ended all drilling on federal land. Day one said, no more drilling on federal land. We're not issuing any more permits. Now, the people that already were drilling on federal land, they had the ability to do that. But here's why that's even more detrimental. This happened right after the COVID pandemic. Remember, this was in January of this year. And so that was when oil prices were down and oil demand was lower. It was up a little bit. But what that meant was a whole bunch of the people that previously had been drilling weren't because there was an excess of supply and a dearth of demand. And so not only did this executive order hurt future, future drilling, it also meant that drilling that had gone on or would have gone on in a normal year was also halted. And so it was even more detrimental because of the timing and the day that he chose to do this. 
And then, of course, he, he nicks the Keystone Pipeline. Now, the obvious liberal rebuttal is, ah, you idiot. You're just bringing that up because you didn't like it. The Keystone Pipeline was never operational. It didn't have anything to do with gas prices. It is true that it was never operational. That is a fact. You, you didn't have an ounce of crude oil or any other kind of fuel coming tr through that pipeline before. But that doesn't mean it didn't affect gas prices. Because here's the thing. It has a chilling effect. Because if all of a sudden you have an administration that for no reason, especially considering that pipelines are significantly safer and more environmentally friendly than having legions of tanker trucks driving across the country to deliver crude oil and gasoline and, and train cars as well. Even though that's an environmentally friendly and safe method to transport oil, it sends a message to the oil companies, and this is exactly what the left wanted. It says to them, you might as well not invest because we're just going to nix your project anyway. You know, no matter how much money you've poured into it, no matter how many plans you've, you've put in place to plan around it, I'm sure that they had like refineries and other facilities that they had built along the trail of the Keystone Pipeline in anticipation for it, things like that. It doesn't matter. We're going to nix it even when it doesn't make any sense to do so. That was the message that it sent. So what do oil companies do then? Well, then they're afraid to spend more money. Then they're afraid to invest more because they think that the Biden administration at any time is just hanging over their head like the sword of Damocles and can just drop the hammer on them and get rid of their investment. They just lose that money. Well, when you have that, it creates a chilling effect. And oil companies aren't going to invest and drill as much as they would have normally. And so the people that are saying the Keystone Pipeline had nothing to do with oil prices, they're someone that doesn't understand the oil industry. You, every industry has some level of speculation, but the oil industry, it's like their stock and trade. They do everything based on speculation. And that destroyed speculation for the next several months because they didn't know what to expect out of the Biden administration. And considering how much hostility there is inside it, we, we had an Obama administration official just the other day saying in video, and unfortunately I didn't have time to pull the video before the show, but said in a video, you can go look it up. She actually said that um, the plan is to bankrupt the oil companies. Well, if you've got that administration in office, what do you think your investment's going to look like? You're just going to hunker down and do nothing and hope that something opens up and you, you just hope that you can survive the storm. So that's a, a bad counter argument. Also, the Afghanistan debacle has also destabilized the Middle East to some degree, which makes oil prices go up as well. And so that's part of it. But there's another big factor here that I don't think we've talked about enough, which, by the way, is just general inflation. So it's not just his policies that affected oil specifically. It's also his general policies that affected everything else. So let's look at the state of inflation right now in our country. So you see there, this is the consumer price index. So this is adjusted for inflation. This is adjusted for how much you're paying for normal everyday things. So gas prices, this is year over year from 2020 to 2021. Gas prices have increased 42.1%. We've already seen that. Shelter prices, in other words, housing, apartments, trailers, whatever, you know, if it's a shelter, this counts. That has increased 3.2%. Food prices have increased 4.6%. So you're spending about 4.6% more on your food, and that's the reason you're filling that at the, the, at the grocery store. And new vehicles have increased by 8.7%.
all items, this is across the board, have increased 5.4%. Now, that doesn't look like a whole lot when you're looking at the raw numbers, but if you think about it, you know, let's say that your family spends, I don't know, $10,000 a month. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty wealthy family. Um, but let's say that you're spending about 10,000 ish dollars a month. I'll tell you what, we'll, we'll knock it down. Um, let's say you're only spending about $5,000 a month. Well, if you're spending, you know, 4.6% more on your food, that's going to start cutting into it. If you're have to buy a new car, that's going to increase by uh, 8.7% and, you know, good luck trying to find a used car. If you're housing, like your rent or whether you're not, you're deciding to move and or maybe you have to move for work, that's 3.2% higher. And that's partly because of building materials and that kind of thing. So, you know, you, it doesn't take long for all of that stuff to start adding up. And if you're paying about five and a half percent more on everything across the board, you can see why if gas prices are up by about 42%, you know, they're just kind of the first wave of that. Well, you can see how just general inflation is a contributing factor there. And so, yes, the gas prices are in part Joe Biden's fault. I'm not saying he bears all of the blame, but he bears a significant amount of it. And him trying to just sort of push the, uh, the responsibility off and say, well, that's really because of Russia and because of OSHA. You see, what he wants to do is he doesn't want to pay the political penalty for his decisions because he halted the drilling. He got rid of the Keystone pipeline because that's what his base was trying to encourage him to do. And then he doesn't want the gas prices to go up, but you can't have it both ways. Those two things do not coincide because the rest of the world also sets their supply and their gas prices based on what the U S does. You know, liberals seem to have a hard time understanding this, but when it comes to an economy, it's like a lake. If you throw a rock into a lake, it ripples out. Now, there's going to be some areas of the lake more affected by that than not. But when you throw a giant boulder into it, you know, that affects the whole lake. You can't just affect one little part of the economy. It's all interconnected. And so this is the problem that you run into. But what I would say to the people making the memes, you can certainly make the case, as I just have, that Joe Biden's policies are directly responsible for the increases in gas prices. This ain't the way to do it. You know, putting up the, the lowest gas price you can possibly find from the Trump administration and the highest gas price you can find out in California somewhere, as opposed to like Mississippi, where you probably pulled the first one, that's just dishonest. And it's not comparing apples to apples. And when people call you out on it, they won't be wrong. You can make a good case without having to mislead people, and then they have nowhere to go. Just show them the facts. And people will wind up getting it. Whenever you want to argue, and this is part of the reason that I, I made tactics in the first place, is because it is a place to talk about how to argue. If you are going to make an anti-Biden argument or any argument, regardless of, of what stance you're trying to, hey, heck, you could do it the opposite way. You could make an anti-Republican argument this way. This would be a, a better way to argue. You always want to make sure that your argument is set in a good place. You want to make a position that is defensible. And so you think about okay, if I were my opponent and I were trying to disprove what I'm saying, how would I do it? Because with the memes that we provided, it's really easy to disprove those. But if you do an actual apples to apples comparison, do a little bit of homework, then you've got a rock solid case and then you 
it, it's very difficult to counter your argument. And so that would just be my advice to any of you. So let's go ahead and go to the daily dose of stupid. That was stupid. I know it was stupid. Really stupid. Hey, I just said it was stupid. <laughs> And today's Daily Dose of Stupid, Ibram X. Kendi, which I know is going to surprise nobody when it comes to him being in the Daily Dose of Stupid. So for those of you who don't know, Ibram X. Kendi is a radical. He wrote a book called Anti-Racist. He's actually the one that coined that term. And so you hear this term, anti-racist and anti-racism. He's the guy that came up with that. He's a professor and basically spends all of his time just finding things to be offended about online. That, that is pretty much his job description at this point, and then he occasionally goes out and gives like public appearances and talks about it. But Ibram X. Kendi has done this. He's also the guy that wrote Racist Baby. I'm not kidding. This is a book for literal babies, infants, to teach them how to not hate black babies, I guess. I don't know. Uh, I looked through it. It's, it's ridiculous. But same guy. This is the same race baiter that he's always been. And so Professor Ibram X. Kendi tweets this out the other day, and I mean, you just gotta love this. Check this out. He says, more than a third of white students lied about their race on college applications, and about half of these applicants lied about being Native American. More than three-fourths of the students lied about their race were accepted. <laughs> the fact that he doesn't see why this cuts against literally everything that he's been complaining about the entire time he has been in the public sphere. Like it's not even because it's, of course it's a, a dumb thing to bring up, but the fact that he tweeted it out thinking this was a thing that helped him, it's almost as good. I won't say quite as good, but it's almost as good as when Elizabeth Warren came out as like, yeah, I'm one 100 or 1022nd Indian. Yeah. See, I'm totally native American. It's one of the hardest cell phones I've seen in a long time. And that is saying something, considering I follow this stuff all the time. <laughs> just destroys his entire political ideology in a single tweet, and it is just delicious. Because if the white kids are lying about their race and saying that they're black on applications or Native American or Asian or whatever, and that's helping them get into college... That means not only is the college board not racist, it means that the white kids actually see an advantage in not being seen as white. That it would be better for them to get into college. It would be easier to get into college if they weren't just white, if they had some other race mixed in. <laughs> so it just completely blows up his entire worldview. Yeah, uh, that, that white privilege really helping out the white kids that are like, I'm so white privileged that I should probably lie about my race so that I have a better shot of getting into college. <laughs> and I mean, since I already brought up the Elizabeth Warren thing, it is the same thing with Elizabeth Warren. Like she wanted the prestige and the advantage of being Native American. So when she was a professor, she actually applied for that job under the false premise that she was Native American. She wrote a book, I kid you not, uh, Pow Wow Chow, which is... <laughs> I don't know. No real Native American would have named a cookbook that. But, um, you know, basically going off of the idea that she was Native American, her university would introduce her as the first Native American professor in their college. And so uh, she, she lied about it on the bar. 
her her Texas bar application because she used to live in Texas actually said that she was Native American. She lied on her bar application, which, by the way, should have been, you know, grounds to disbar her and pull her bar license. I don't know why they didn't. But regardless, that's where we stand right now. But anyway, it's just hysterical that there are these constant stories showing the exact opposite of what they do. And not only does Kendi not have an answer for it, he mistakenly thinks that it helps him out. He tweets it out thinking somehow this proves that racism is systematic when actually it proves the system is the opposite of that, that it actually favors minorities. And because of that, white kids thought that it would be easier for them to get into college if they were to just pretend that they were not white. Um, but, but here's the thing about Kendi. His entire career, his entire career revolves around finding racism. If I hired a guy tomorrow and I said, your job is to find Sasquatch, I will pay you as long as you continue looking for Sasquatch. You don't think at some point he's going to come back with the Sasquatch picture? Because, or, you know, something he thinks is Sasquatch. I mean, he might even fake it. I don't know. Kind of like the old uh, Bubba Watson with the news thing. Um, but, you know, they will manufacture incidents of racism because the demand for racist incidents is, is much higher than the actual supply. But my point in all of that is, if your job is to just constantly look for ways that different things are racist, of course he thinks everything is racist. Because his job depends on him finding incidents of racism. You know, if my job depended on me finding Sasquatch, you better believe I'm coming back with a picture of somebody in a gorilla suit. <laughs> like, that, that's just how this works. If you're constantly looking for something, of course you're going to find it. And that's why there's whole groups of people now that have jobs literally dependent upon them finding incidents of racism. That's all Al Sharpton does is he waits for something, somebody to say something or do something he perceives as racist, go to town, whip everybody up, he collects his paycheck, and he goes home. That's how it works. He wouldn't have a job or be relevant in any way if racism were not a major problem. And because it's not a major problem, he has to manufacture incidents of it actually happening. And Ibram X. Kendi is no different. And, I mean, the perfect proof of this is actually right from Ibram X. Kendi's book, Anti-Racist. Because if you read the book, there's actually a paragraph that basically says, how do you know whether or not you're a racist? And I kid you not, this is the actual explanation well, if you say that you're a racist and you acknowledge your white privilege and racism, then you're a racist. And if you deny that you're a racist, well, then you're also a racist because that means you're denying your own white privilege and racism, which makes you racist. And so there's no way to not be racist. That's the point. You are a racist no matter what you do. There's nothing you can say. There's nothing you can do. The jury is out. We have sentenced you guilty before we've even heard the case. That's how Ibram X. Kendi's worldview operates. Everything is racist, everyone is racist, and the system is racist because his job depends on it being that way. I mean, you know, it's, it's just like he's a salesman trying to go door to door. He has to create a need for his product because if he doesn't, then that dude's out of a job and he's probably, you know, selling hot dogs on the sidewalks. That's really all that he can do at that point. And because he knows that and because he understands that his livelihood is tied into that, he's constantly finding things that are not racist and declaring them racist. So he saw a news article. It's like, oh, my gosh, this is an article about race. He thinks that every single one of those would prove his point anyway. So he just tweets it out, thinking that somehow it helps his case when actually it destroys his case and his worldview. A similar thing happened. Lauren Chen, for those of you who don't know, she's a younger conservative, has a talk show on The Blaze. 
uh, one of the most gorgeous women on earth and uh, brains on top of that, the Lord gave to her with both hands. So this is Lauren Chen tweeting out, and by the way, she is part Asian. So <laughs> this is great. This is a graphic that she tweeted out a picture of at the University of Maryland talking about the demographics of their college applicants being accepted. The same thing that Ibram X. Kinney was talking about. It's not the same study, but it's the same idea about college applicants. You'll notice there at the bottom that white or Asian students is a category. So there's students of color minus Asian, and then there's white students or Asian students lumped together. And the reason Lauren Chen is, is pointing this out, Asian group, uh, Asian group with whites excluding people of color. I mean, it's, it's just more of the same thing. You see, because they want everything to be racist, they couldn't possibly have Asians grouped in with people of color because then it really wouldn't look all that one-sided. It wouldn't look like, you know, racism is actually happening. And the reason is because a very large percentage of the Asian population, actually higher than whites, wind up going to college and getting degrees. And that's because their culture really emphasizes education, and that's a good thing. But it also proves that being a minority is not what's holding you back in the United States of America today. Remember, these are people that as recently as the 1930s and 40s, we were locking up and putting into concentration camps because FDR was afraid that they were Japanese spies. Don't tell me people haven't discriminated against Asians. And what was it like last year where the left was talking about Asian hate because of those Asian massage parlors that were under attack that it turned out it had nothing to do with race? I mean, it would have been terrible if it did, and I wouldn't say that it was impossible, but when you actually look at the facts of the case, turned out it actually had nothing to do with the fact that they were racist and everything to do with the fact that this guy was just a sexual pervert and wanted to kill, you know, people for not being willing to be prostitutes. Anyway, I know, weird story, I didn't mean to get off on that, but the point in all of that is, if that stat excluded Asians and put them in the people of color category, as opposed to the white category, it would look pretty even. And they can't have that because then that would suggest that the system isn't really racist. So what they have to do is they have to lump the Asians who are overachievers in with the white kids to make it look racist. That's what's going on here. It's, it's really just hilarious. And I don't know if you know this or not, but they actually have had court, court cases where Harvard was trying to make the case that they should be allowed to keep Asian students out. They discriminated against Asian students because they had so many of them in the, uh, the, that were applying to college there, and so many of them were getting in. They actually had a court case to try to say, we can discriminate against Asians and use their race against them. And it also reminds me of a campus reform video. I didn't have time to show it. It's about five minutes long, but it's very well worth the watch. So what they do is they went down to the University of Florida, big SEC school, and they talked about, well, should we have diversity quotas for college admissions? And every student was like, oh, yeah, we definitely need those. We need to ha make sure that our student body is diverse and all this stuff and everybody should be represented of the, the population they have there. And she said, OK, well, do you think that that should also extend to university activities like football? And they're like, no, that's skill-based. And that's a, we should just be worried about getting the best athletes for that. Well, isn't school supposed to be skill-based? Isn't that supposed to be, shouldn't we be just getting people that are academically most fit to be in college? And 
all of them were, well, I don't know about all of them, but most of the people that they had talked to earlier about that were like, yeah, I kind of see your point. If it is supposed to be skilled based and it, you know, if workplaces are supposed to be about work and performance, maybe we should just get the best people and not worry about the skin color. See, because they understood then that if we had a, a football team that had to ethnically reflect the area, it'd be mostly a bunch of white dudes. And, and one guy even quipped, and he was right. He's like, when was the last time you saw a prominent Asian football player? And there's not many of them. There's really not. And his point in all that is, why don't we just get the people that are best at football to be on the football team? Why don't we just get the people that are best at academics to be in the universities? Why don't we just judge based on that? That seems to be a winning strategy. The best person gets the job. But the ultimate, you know, takeaway from this, I guess, with Ibram X. Kendi, this dude is like the living personification of postmodernism. And the reason that I say that is he just sort of cloaks himself in the veil of academics, you know, that I'm a professor and I study this stuff and I'll, to hide the fact that he's kind of a moron. I mean, to read the story and not, I don't know if he actually read the story, but to read this story and understand and think that this somehow helps your case and not even realize that it actually cuts against literally everything that your career is built on. And for him to not be able to see that, that means he's not that smart. This guy's kind of an idiot. And this really puts that on display, but because he's able to veil himself in academia, which postmodernism does, it tries to veil itself as a new idea and something that's very highly academic and straight out of the universities. It doesn't matter that none of it's true or that it doesn't make any sense. As long as it has the stamp of approval of the academic elites, well, then it must be gospel. That's what Ibram X. Kendi is. He's an idiot pretending that he's very smart because he can yell racist at people. That's what he does for a living. <laughs> And somehow that makes him worthy to be employed at a major university. He's kind of like, if you've ever seen Harry Potter, Chamber of Secrets, which is one of the better Harry Potter books and movies. Chamber of Secrets is so good. And one of the reasons that I like it so much is because of one of the villains. And he's not even really a villain in the mo most traditional sense. He's just incompetent. His name is Gilderoy Lockhart. And I mean, Ibram X. Kendi is just like the race version of that guy in Harry Potter. If you know anything about that story, Gilderoy Lockhart is, has, been, has made a name for himself as being an expert in defense against the dark arts, and he becomes the defense against the dark arts teacher. He's a celebrity because of how good he is at tracking down evil wizards and taking them out. He doesn't actually do any of that. What he actually does is he casts memory charms on people that did those things and then steal their story. <laughs> and that's what Ibram X. Kendi does. He, you know, is, is taking on the mantle of being this highly academic, intelligent, you know, thought leader. When in reality, he's not really all that great at thinking. And this tweet just kind of proves that. Um, but unfortunately, that's just the way it is. There's a, a whole class of people now that just would be completely out of a job were it not for racism. Okay, so we have one more Daily Dose of Stupid. This one's going to be a short one, but I do think it's important. For those of you who don't know, Gail Godot, you remember I was talking about Lauren Chen earlier? One of the very few people I consider more attractive than her is Gail Godot. So Gail Godot has now been cast as the evil queen in Disney's remake of their classic animated film, Snow White. Now, I'm a huge Gail Godot fan. I, thought one, I still think Wonder Woman is the best movie in the DC universe. 
bar none. I mean, it's really not even close. Unless you count Snyder Cut. Then Snyder Cut might cut above it a little bit, but I think I'd still favor the first Wonder Woman. 84 was all right. Wasn't great. But safe to say, I'm a huge Gal Gadot fan. I think she's a great actress. I think she's absolutely stunning. It's very stupid to cast her as the evil queen. This is a, a blatant miscast. Disney should have never cast her as the evil queen, and here is why. She's the most attractive woman in the world, y'all. A key part of the story of Snow White is that the evil queen is jealous because Snow White is deemed more beautiful than her by the mirror on the wall. Yeah. Um, good luck finding someone more attractive than Gal Gadot to play Snow White. See, they've painted themselves into a corner. They're not going to find an actress that's better looking than Gal Gadot. And so when we watch that movie, the mirror is going to be like, oh, Snow White's better looking than you. And everyone in the theater is going to be like, yeah, okay. <laughs> it doesn't matter who they get. They're not going to get anyone better looking than Gal Gadot. They've now made it to where they cast the one person on earth that cannot play that role. <laughs> Because she's too attractive. They won't be able to find anyone better looking than her. Anyway, I digress. Let's go to the Chaplin's Report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplin Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for The Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. Since it is Veterans Day, I thought that we would do a Veterans Day themed Chaplain's Report. So we will not be continuing our series in 1 Samuel, at least for today. We're taking a brief hiatus from that. But when I thought about Veterans Day and I thought about what would I do in connection with Veterans Day, I thought really at the core of it, all Veterans Day is it's just an opportunity to say thank you. Now, it is aimed at a certain group of people. But when you boil it down to its bare bones, that's really all Veterans Day is. It is an opportunity for regular citizens to say to people that served in the military, we appreciate you, we appreciate what you did, and we'd like to take a day to honor that. And that's a really good thing. So with that in mind, I thought, what would be the best Bible story for this? Because there's a lot of stories about being grateful, and it's because... I think God realizes that humans are just not that great at being grateful because we're lazy and we lack perspective and sometimes we don't realize when we ought to be grateful. We may not realize the, you know, the magnitude of something good that is done for us and because of that we have a tendency to not be as grateful as we should be. So I thought just a perfect way to illustrate this is a story from Luke 17 about Jesus healing the lepers. And as he, he talking about Jesus here, and as he entered a village, ten men with leprosy, who stood at a distance, met him. And they raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And they were going and were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. But Jesus responded and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. Now, it's not lost on me 
the significance of the only person that thought it was important to thank Jesus for this was a Samaritan who, by the Jews, would have thought to have been the one that is the least likely to be a godly person, the person that lives apart and outside of the Jewish faith and the Jewish religion and believes things like that they should be worshiping at, at different places and that they they don't honor the prophets. They believe that the old law is all that, that you need. They have a modified version of the Pentateuch that have actually perverted God's law. And so because of that, you would think that he would be the person that would be least likely to be grateful. And yet he's the only one that turned back and said, thank you. I think that that's a pretty powerful lesson in and of itself, that we shouldn't judge people based on sort of the demographics, the, the racial makeup, the belief system, because sometimes people surprise you. And sometimes it's the people that you would be least inclined to think would be a moral person that actually shows the most gratitude. I think that that's something that this story goes out of its way to illustrate, and it's right on that. But to give us a little bit better understanding of this passage, I think you really have to understand leprosy itself. You see, leprosy is an incredibly painful and, in many cases, terminal disease. But it doesn't kill you quickly. It's a skin disease that basically eats you alive slowly. And it's highly contagious, which is the reason that once you actually had leprosy, you had to live outside of society. They would go down streets, and when they would go to a marketplace to buy food or something of that nature, they had to announce the fact that they were coming in and yell out, unclean, unclean, so that no one would get close to them. This is the life that they lived, and they had to live away from their family, they had to live away from everyone out of fear that they could make them sick. And so they just lived in colonies outside of the cities. This is, this is the life of a leper. And they can't, like, work with people. So what they have to do is they have to keep their distance and they just kind of have to make a living some other kind of way. And most of the time what that meant was begging. Not to say that they couldn't do anything else, but the fact that they're sick and very sensitive to sunlight meant that working was very, very difficult, and so most of them just kind of had to beg for a living. So you can imagine, this is a very difficult life. And Jesus just cleansed it. I mean, he just told them to go to the priest. They start walking, and before too long, all of a sudden, their leprosy is just gone. I mean, can you imagine what that was like? To have this thing that you've lived with, I don't know how long any of them had been lepers, but I imagine there were at least a few of them that have been a leper for a really long time. You know, you might have been away from your family. You may not have been able to hug your children for, you know, five, ten years. Can you imagine what that's like? And then somebody just comes along and heals you and doesn't ask anything in return? I mean, that's profound. And there's only one guy that thought that was worth going back and saying thank you for? And he happens to be the one that the people of the day would have considered the least spiritual, the one that would be least likely to do that. You see, Jesus didn't just grant these people healing. I mean, yes, he did that too. But what he really granted them was freedom. They could go back home. They could live with their family. They could worship God again. You weren't allowed in the temple if you were a leper. So they're allowed to actually go back and, and give praise to God and to, to live their lives and to work again. I mean, just they have this catastrophic event hit 
And then all of a sudden it's just gone within the matter, a matter of minutes. And so what Jesus was actually giving them wasn't their health. It was their liberty, their ability to go back to a normal life and be with their loved ones. And yet, even despite this knowledge, there's still only one that comes back to actually say thank you. And I think that there's a powerful metaphor there for our veterans. Now, I'm not trying to deify veterans or saying that they're exactly like Jesus or anything like that. I'm not trying to do that. And I don't think that they would want me to do that, most of them. But I am saying that there is a similarity in that they are a group of people that is willing to do a lot of personal sacrifice for the sake of people that they don't know and will never say thank you. You know, that one of the things that was read earlier today in our Veterans Day program was the, the poem called The Soldier. And at the end of it, it talks about how the soldier salutes the flag, lives under the flag, is buried with the coffin draped many times with a flag. And he fights so that the person that hates the flag is allowed to burn it. And that's pretty profound. Even people that don't like veterans, even people that hate them, they are willing to sacrifice for their freedoms too. Even if they use those freedoms to do things that they don't like. Even if those people are ungrateful. And that is a Jesus-like quality. That is a quality where you put other people's needs ahead of your own. So how do we avoid being one of those nine people? Because I think we are those people far more often than we realize. I know I am. There's times where I'm not nearly grateful enough, not nearly to the level that I should be, not only to God, but to other people. So how do we avoid that? Well, I think the first big step is perspective. If we would just put things into perspective and sort of take a step back and look, then I think that that's going to, to be a, a really big help in that. And you remember what I was saying earlier about, earlier about Ibram X. Kendi? how the reason he sees racism in absolutely everything is because it's his job to look for things that are racist. And so because that's what you look for, that's what you find. What did Jesus say? Seek and ye shall find. Well, if we look for opportunities to be grateful, if we look for good things in our life and have a positive outlook, we're going to see a lot of things to say thank you for. And so if we're constantly looking for that, then that's what we're going to find. If we're constantly looking for things to complain about or talk about how unfair things are, you know what we're going to find? An awful lot of unfairness. We're going to find an awful lot of things to gripe about. And that's something that I personally need to do a better job of. I mean, part of my job is to be analytical and talk about it when things are wrong. But it wouldn't hurt me to be a little bit more positive and to look for things that are going well. And one of the things I love about this episode about a Veterans Day special is I get to focus on something really good. And maybe if we did that a little bit more in our lives, instead of constantly being hooked on the outrage of you know, jumping on Twitter and yelling at our political opponents, not that they don't deserve it from time to time, and not saying that there's never a good time to do that, but I'm saying, let's not make that a centerpiece of our life. Let's look for things to be positive about, more importantly, things to be grateful for, to other people, and also to God, and let's not take things for granted. You know, I was actually listening to something the other day, where um, it was a book by Jonathan Hyde, and he's talking about mental distortions, and one of the most common ones is where we are negative about everything for no reason, like we refuse to accept the good. And the example that he gave is a husband that says, well, that's what wives are supposed to do. So when, you're, you know, when your wife says something nice or nice to you or helps with household chores or something like that, that robs a person of their gratitude. Because 
when you look at something and you refuse to see the good in it, then you don't see that you have a whole lot of reason to be grateful. Now, these lepers should have been able to see that, considering the gift that they had been given. But I think it would help us all out if we just look for things to be grateful for, because that which we seek, we are going to find. And if we're looking for opportunities to be grateful for things, then that's exactly what we're going to come to. Oh, and by the way, since Thanksgiving is coming up, and it is, maybe this is a good thing to focus on for that too. You know, take some time before Thanksgiving and just maybe come up with a list of things that you're grateful for and focus on that and meditate about that and thank God for those things. Pray about it. I think that that'll really go a long way. So I think really the goal here in the message is we want to be the person that went back and that's because Jesus remembered the one that went back. Everybody remembers the one that went back. And so being somebody that adopts an attitude of being grateful and saying thank you and realizing the blessings that they have in their life, focusing on the things that they do have as opposed to the things that they don't have, that's a person that makes an impact. That's a person that people remember and appreciate. When you say thank you for something that someone else did, that really makes a difference in their life. Because regardless of political affiliation, religious affiliation, any of that, I don't know of a single person, culture, that doesn't appreciate gratitude. Everybody that I've ever run into really appreciates it when someone is grateful to them. And I think that we appreciate being grateful to other people if we'll allow ourselves to do it. And so I think that that's even more true with God. I believe that God also remembers and appreciates the grateful person. Stay the course, friends. Thank you for listening to the Tactics Podcast. Tactics is a production of Not Ashamed Media. Any opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of our business partners or sponsors. Graphics by Jessica Dawson. Video production by Jackson Dean. Broadcast studio provided by Faulkner University. Location studio provided by Delreda Church of Christ. Copyright 2021.